Thank you for listening to Law Talks. Before you listen in to this episode, we wanted to let you know that this is one of our first attempts at creating the podcast. And as a result, it lacks the audio quality and cohesion that the later episodes have. We've kept it unchanged as the content is invaluable and very much worth a listen. We hope you'll stick around and check out and listen in to our more recent episodes too. Welcome to the first episode of Law Talks. I'm Ellie. And I'm Katie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing a range of topics from deep fakes to clinical negligence. Later on, we'll be joined by Alice Robertson Rickard, a part-time judge of the First Tier Tribunal. She'll be answering your questions, giving us an insight into her life at the bar and her work as a judge. So Ellie, how does it feel to be recording the very first episode of Law Talks? Very exciting, um, very strange as well, to be honest. But yeah, really excited to just start the first episode and talk a bit about deepfakes. Yeah, I'm really excited too. So for those of our listeners that don't know what deepfakes are, do you want to explain to them what what it is? So essentially deepfakes um, are some form of media, like an image or um, audio clip video, which, well, choosing the name, is fake and it's essentially been created by deep learning technology. Um, and to be honest, the easiest way to think of it is, is actually quite similar technology to things like Snapchat um, or in CGI and movies. Mm. Um, but the thing that makes it criminal is that it's, they essentially create forgeries, which are very believable, which allows them to um, create sort of fake evidence of people doing things that they didn't actually do. And I think probably the most recent example everyone can think of, although this was... Um, used as a warning against deepfake is channel four with the queen's speech yeah that was really big in the news yeah i think it was supposed to be um it was used as sort of like a warning against how convincing deepfakes now are um and some people loved it some people hated it so yeah yeah another example is jordan peele's deepfake of obama that was quite controversial but was aiming to show how easy deepfakes are to make but yeah it's also I was reading how easy it is for just anyone to get their hands on the technology because you can create deep fakes from sort of, is it Adobe Photoshop, which is so easy to just download onto a laptop. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a tech expert by any means, but I think if you only have a few photos, it's not as realistic. But if you have thousands and thousands, they're really realistic which obviously means it's quite a prominent issue for celebrities. Probably it's like a high, they have a higher chance of little minute expressions you make in your face. Yeah, well, one of the examples I found was Bella Thorne, the actress, um, made a video talking about her father passing away. And part of, in part of that, she said, I miss him. And they basically turned that phrase into a deep fake pornography of her, which is just horrible, really. But yeah, what do you think the implications of deepfakes will be on the law? Yeah, so sort of bringing it to the law, um, on really basic terms, there's no specific law that, um, you know, tackles deepfakes. So they're not banned or really technically controlled. But as is often the case, um, when it comes to court, existing laws tend to be applied. So for example, you know, I'm sure we've all heard of copyright infringement. Um, if the deepfakes are, you know, seen as particularly damaging 
um, to a person, then it can be, or or if it's particularly, you know, targets an individual, it can be um, privacy and anti-harassment laws and, and um, examples like that. And some of these, you know, they already do have different precedent cases. So, for example, um, excuse me if I don't say this name clearly right, David Buchan, I think, in 2018, um, was charged with 16 weeks in jail and he had to pay £5,000 to his victim because he created a deep fake gallery of pornographic images um, essentially because they worked at the same investment management firm and he was trying to discredit her um, to the bosses oh my god and you know he's not it's not like he's someone who's famous or um necessarily has a complete background into AI and hacking so it shows how you know even on a everyday I think that's such an interesting case and it also gives I think an insight into the types of cases we're going to be seeing more frequently in the coming years yeah no it's definitely um I mean hard to imagine how the law is going to sort of keep up with with all the different cases of it and um, another thing that I was reading about is that just with the existence of deepfakes out there, even when it's, you know, it's not a case particularly focused on a deepfake, how do you know, you know, when people use um, telephone calls or videos in court as examples, um, trying to give, you know, um, trying to build a character, how can the courts be 100% sure that these aren't deepfakes, you know, if they're becoming more common? Yeah, massively. And I guess you've also highlighted another issue there, which is what is the law going to do about deepfake spreading misinformation and disinformation? Um, for instance, like how will that affect general elections and things like that? It's definitely, um, you know, just a huge similarity to the whole fake news, which was obviously a huge part of the US elections. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a whole question, can they be dangerous to democracy? Um I suppose, particularly in places like America that at the moment are very polarised. Yeah. One thing I also found interesting was how some social media platforms, so I think Instagram is one of them, for instance, have taken steps to stop the spread of deep fakes on their social media sites. They, um, Yeah, they. I um, I read a little bit about them. They, what's interesting is that they have all taken slightly different action and different ones have been called whether how effective they are because I know that I was reading Pornhub completely bans deepfakes which you know is admirable obviously from the implications that they have but um if you this is obviously something that I read <laughs> in an article not done myself but if you type in um deepfakes Pornhub into Google apparently just thousands of um videos come up anyway yeah and i mean it might get to a point where the deep fakes are so advanced that they don't have the technology to detect what is a deep fake and what isn't yeah definitely so i think instagram yeah i think um instagram has has a slightly more laid back approach that they um Mm. you know I think it's more that they're sort of looking almost on a case by case. Not, I don't think they've done a blanket ban. Um, so yeah, it's interesting that you know social media platforms are like acknowledge the issue, but can't seem to like have a unified response of how gonna, they're going to deal with them. Yeah, and more broadly, I just think the impact that digital technology is having on the world, and in particular the legal sector, 
it's crazy and it'll be really exciting to actually see what happens over the next few years. Well I think a Another example that I came across, it was actually, it's not criminal, it was family, family court. Um, so the details are fairly minimum, but essentially a deep fake uh, phone call was used as evidence against um, a father character when it came to a child custody case. So it, it essentially the phone call painted the father to be sort of violent and threatening to the mother and child. Um, and... I'm not quite, I don't quite know the details of the case, but fortunately it was um, discovered that the video was a fake. Um, so obviously it was struck off as evidence, but I, yeah, it definitely shows how first, you know, how do you trust evidence uh, when this happens? Yeah. It's just moving so quickly. Definitely hard probably for legislation to keep up with yeah. the technology. So I think that leaves us a good point to move on to the next part of our podcast, which is a Q&A with our guest this month. Joining us today is Alice Robertson Rickard, a part-time judge of the First Tier Tribunal. Prior to her judicial appointment, she practiced as a barrister for over 10 years, specialising in clinical negligence and crime. In her role as a judge, she sits in two chambers, the Social Entitlement Chamber and the Health, Education and Social Care Chamber. In addition to this, Alice sits on the Fitness to Practice committees of several healthcare regulators. So, Alice, we'll start off with some icebreaker questions. So we were wondering, how did you become a judge and what route did you take? Okay, so um, I qualified as a barrister and came via that route. Um, So uh, what I did was a law degree, which took three years, and then I did um, a year of bar school. Um, And the time I was doing it, there was only one place you could do it, which was the Inns of Court School of Law in the city. Um, And then uh, a year of pupillage. And then I got a tenancy um, after that and practiced as a barrister for several years. Um, and then I decided I'd like to try something a bit different. And I applied via the Judicial Appointments Commission uh, for a tribunal judge role. Um, and you have to have been practicing as a barrister or a solicitor or similar um, for at least five years to be able to apply for that. And then it's a process that takes a long time, about a year um and um and yeah got appointed by them in I think 2013. That is amazing yeah that's so cool um just from that just because I've been reading up on it recently did you um like secure your pupillage before doing the bar or was it after? Um it was towards the end of uh bar school uh yeah so I didn't have it secured beforehand but I, I think it was quite normal to do it in that order at the time um uh, yeah, so I was lucky I had a funded pupillage um, and they weren't all funded at the time. Um, so that was good. And also I I got I had my fees paid for at bar school as well because I had a scholarship. So I was I was quite lucky. Um, so, yeah, it was all it was all relatively smooth for me, but I, I don't think it always is. Um, you have to be prepared for um, rejection and a bit of a rough ride and. You know, often it's very hard to get a pupillage. It's hugely competitive, particularly now. Um, 
and then getting taken on after your pupillage is is tough as well I and mean, you probably looked into the statistics but um uh, when I did it there were two pupils and one of us got kept on and one of us didn't so you know it's it's tough yeah I mean that's amazing that you got funded and secured secured a pupillage yeah. I, I wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise so it was <laughs> yeah it was good it was really good very impressive. Okay. Right, we'll jump on to the next question. Other than sitting in court, what does your job involve? Well, lots of reading. Um, that's probably the most um, notable thing, I would say. I do get huge, huge bundles to read. Um, so you have to learn to read very quickly, um, picking out what you need and what you don't need. Um, uh, and the other sort of notable factor, I would say, is it involves sitting sitting with other people and getting on with a really wide range of people, different people on a daily basis, um, learning to work with other people, um, appreciate that people do things differently, managing other people, coming to a decision um, collectively. Uh, is It's all um, a skill that you, you learn to develop. That's um, really interesting. Ellie and I were chatting the other day about how we're not doing law degrees and how... Yeah we're worried about having the skills we need for law but actually hearing you say that it really is transferable skills um, absolutely that we yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's a bad thing at all that you're not doing law degrees I really don't I think you'll have a, a real broad experience to bring to profession in due course which is a benefit um and it it, it absolutely is about transferable skills um so no I wouldn't worry about that in the slightest it's really good to hear. <laughs> um, we were wondering whether you had a case that you found the most interesting that you could remember. Um, well, when I was fairly junior um, and I was practicing in crime, um, I was led in quite an interesting case which involved um, an armed bank robbery. Um, and that was quite interesting. I found it quite exciting at the time uh, because the evidence was all circumstantial evidence. There was no direct evidence and it was all uh, reliant on, well, we had um, a facial mapping expert um, and then we just had circumstantial evidence about the defendant being in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the right time, uh, as it were. Um, and it was, it was a difficult case to prosecute because of the, you know, the, the, the missing bits of the jigsaw. Um, but um, I do remember that case because uh, we, we did successfully um, prosecute him. He was convicted. Um, and um, what I what stuck out in my mind as a very junior barrister was um, the fact that we we hadn't and couldn't have told the jury beforehand that he had formed for doing this type of thing before. And I remember I, I was the one that got to stand up and tell the jury at the time that he had previous convictions for similar things after they'd come to their verdict and they all sort of gasped and it was all quite exciting. Um, yeah, so I remember that because it was one of my first interesting cases. So the next question, this was from Jan. <laughs> Do you watch <laughs> Judge Judy? <laughs> no. Really? <laughs> I'm sorry, I have never watched it and I can't give you any opinion at all. I haven't actually either, so I'm really sure. I have seen Judge Judge Rinder on Strictly, if that counts, but I think it probably doesn't. <laughs> What's it really like in the robing room? Oh, now that is a good question. 
Um, I didn't really like some bits of it and other bits of it are quite fun. Um, so it's a place where you can sort of catch up with people you know and, and it, there, there can be a lot of camaraderie, um, more so after the case, I would say. But, but beforehand, it can be... Um, it can be a bit challenging and you do get some opponents who try and sort of put you off your game a bit and, and can be a bit, um, maybe a bit unpleasant or they can just try and put a bit of pressure on you to not adduce certain bits of evidence or to just try and spook you a bit, especially if you're junior. Um, and yeah, I have to say, I didn't particularly enjoy that side of things. That's but, um, so interesting. It, yeah. That's what the nature of a very competitive environment. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, yeah, just tr trying to agree a few things in advance and, and try to sort of perhaps put you off making the argument in court, you know, to make you think it's a really bad point or something. Um, yeah. So you have to get used to that bit. The more, we've got some more in-depth questions that people have asked is how often do you think that you've given a wrong verdict as a judge? <laughs> that hard one. Um, well um, so I, do, I don't give verdicts as such because I don't I don't um, I don't sit in crime and it's the jury that comes up with the verdict um, but um, so I, ma I make decisions and really you know I often wonder whether it's the right decision or the wrong decision because you never you never know for sure. Um, all you can ever do is follow the evidence, analyze the evidence, um, and make a decision on what you've seen and heard, uh, what you think is more likely than not to have happened. Um, and that really is all you can do. And some cases you go away and worry about more than others, but I've tried to make a bit of a rule of it that um, I never, sleep on it so I, I do sometimes go home and think about something and wonder if I've done the right thing particularly in the um, healthcare regulation if you strike someone off and it means they lose their profession um, you know you do sometimes go away and think about it but I, I try and say to myself well I'm, I'm never going to, to, to sort of think about it the next day that's what I try and do because otherwise you'd find it a really difficult job to do on a daily basis. <laughs> do you find your whole life? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say, do you find it hard to separate work and home? Because I know you're saying you try and switch off, but is is that at times just not possible? Or? Yeah, no, I, I to be honest, I'm pretty good at um, sort of compartmentalizing and just putting things in a box. And I, I don't, I try not to worry too much about things. I, I, I really do. Um, I think, I think you have to be quite strict about that. Yeah, I think it's um, probably the same in lots of professions as well. Um, even being a student, sometimes I've got so many deadlines and say going out in the snow today, it's like, right, for the next hour, I'm not going to worry. I'm just going to go and have fun. And then from two to three, I can do my essay, things like that. Yeah, well, I've got a, I've got a friend who is a Crown Court judge and he does a lot of unpleasant sex cases, child abuse, uh, things that really, really do play on your mind. Um, and he said that he has a rule that he doesn't read any papers at home. So he has all his reading um, delivered to the to the court. So he literally has a different space to go into whenever he's getting into that zone and having to read that kind of material. Um, and I think I think that's quite clever. So this is quite an open ended question, but um, we're wondering what are your top tips for success in the industry? Gosh. Yeah, no well, pressure, Alice. <laughs> 
I think you have to be prepared to work incredibly hard. Um, there's no substitute for that. You have to be really prepared to put the hours in. Um, certainly as a junior barrister, I would quite often not sleep very much at night. Um, you know, you might get given a trial at six o'clock the day before that you're prosecuting the next morning at 10 o'clock. And the only way to get it prepared is to work through the night. And that's just how it is. Um, obviously, that gets better as you get more senior and you don't get so many last minute things. Um, but yeah, you really do have to be prepared to, to put the work in. Um, and I, I think, you know, there are sort of different different skills that um, make make you successful or not. I think if you're a really good communicator, um, if you can get on with a, a really broad range of people so you need to be um you need to be able to talk to your client but you also need to be talk, be able to talk to your instructing solicitor and the judge and you know you need to just have a really um a really good ability to communicate with a very wide range of people um another question that we have for you is when trying to get into the world of law what things would you recommend to stand out and what do you need to stand out to get placements at top firms which is a slightly pressurizing question uh, I think it's really difficult now I think basically you have to have absolutely brilliant grades and on top of that you have to be a really amazing all-rounder who does absolutely loads in your spare time and um you know helps old ladies cross the road and works for charities and does absolutely everything um I think it's really really tough I think I think if you can get lots of work experience, it's really helpful because it shows your commitment um, and it obviously gives you a really good idea of what area you want to, to try and pursue. Um, but of course, it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation because it's hard to get the, the work experience as well, isn't it? Um, I mean, I think, I think it's a bit of a numbers game to start with. I remember applying in my second year to many, many, many barristers chambers for mini pupillages and also several um, law firms to go and do a bit of work with them and uh, also the government legal service I did a bit of um, work experience with them which was fascinating um, so I think I think yeah you really need to find a way to demonstrate your commitment and um, and it involves again lots and lots of hard work and slog unfortunately. I think what we found um, I mean I'm what I've particularly found is that it's quite hard at the moment. I mean, obviously with COVID anyway, but applying for things, a lot of them you already have to have work experience to apply. So I think the initial um, sort of first couple of things is quite difficult to get. I think it, I think you're right. I think it's ever so difficult. I think you need a bit of luck really in the first instance. And I think unfortunately it still helps if you know someone who can just give you a little bit of experience to start with and then you can gradually build on it. Um, it's the same with uh, applying for for any any jobs really. Once you've once you've got your foot in the door, once you once you've got one, you get some experience, and then you can give examples and you can prove yourself. Um, but it's it's it is a challenge just getting the the first bits of experience. Um, but what I did, I did a lot of um, voluntary uh, work. Um, so um, for example, when I decided I wanted to um, become a judge. I volunteered to sit on school appeal panels. So I, I, I sat um, and decided whether, so it was people who didn't get into their school of first choice or whatever. You, you have an, a, a panel of 
three people who basically decide whether the school has followed the rules properly. Um, and also I did school exclusions. Uh, so deciding whether people have been properly excluded from school. Um, and that's all for, that's all voluntary and you don't get paid for it. And it does take up quite a lot of your time. But then I was able to demonstrate evidence of making evidence-based decisions and things like that. So voluntary work is often a really good way to get experience. Yeah. That's uh, and it doesn't need to be strictly legal experience. Mm. So it could be one thing you know, I just comparable skills. Gonna touch on that you you said. So you're saying it's kind of a bit of a numbers game, which I completely agree with, because obviously the more firms you apply to and more pupillages you apply to, the more likely to get one. But in my experience, an issue I've been having is the application process is so specific that each application will take me days. I mean, I've got a general rule of thumb that's if the sentence can be applied to any law firm, it's not specific enough. So mm. that's the level of detail each application has to go into. Yes. How do you, what's your advice for managing that? Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. What you can do is you can have a list of examples that you know demonstrate certain qualities well. Um, and you can reuse your examples, but you will always be tweaking your application and you will always be tailoring it to whoever you're applying to. And there is no shortcuts around that, I'm afraid, because because the people sifting through these applications can see if it's just a generic application. And unfortunately, they want you to demonstrate commitment to them. Mm. So um, I'm afraid it, it you do have to put the hours in. There's no way around it. But I would just keep a list of really good examples to demonstrate different skills okay. yeah. and and just, just keep keep an ongoing diary actually whenever something so if you have a bad day and something really bad happens um sometimes i i have this at i've had a bad day at work and it's because something tricky has happened and i try and think to myself okay that was tricky and that was unpleasant but it's now resolved and actually that's a really good example of a, B, C, whatever, write it down and think, okay, I'm going to use that in next time I need to demonstrate something. Um, so just try and just try and get used to jotting down things that that are a good example of how you deal with things. That's that a really sense. good idea. Yeah, I like that. Helpful. What do you wish you knew or have been told before getting into law? <laughs> um, I think... Um, I wish I had known before I decided to pursue the bar route that it is a very solitary profession in many ways. Um, so although there is camaraderie and you do enjoy being a member of chambers and you do get together on a Friday night for a glass of champagne or whatever, um, on a daily basis, you are working on your own and you're exercising your own judgment and you're applying your own mind to the problem. Um, and it's actually, it suits some people very, very well. Um, and you know what sort of person you are, whether it will suit you. Um, but I think I only really realised when I started sitting on panels of three that I really enjoy working with others more. Um, and for me, I prefer to work collectively. And I think there's real strength in working as a team. Um, and I, I think probably if I'd thought about it more at the time, I would have worked out that I'm probably someone who would rather not work alone. But, um, you know, that that's just very personal to me. <laughs> so do, just um, from what you're saying, how it's 
do you, your, your career has changed now is it something that you think that the longer you work in a sort of the higher you get up it's you're more likely to be working in teams um or is it more the transition from like barrister to judge um, well, yeah, I think for me, it was the change from barrister to judge, because I happen to sit the, the things I sit on, I do sit with others. And I think that's what's different. However, you, you're, you're also right, as you sort of start working on bigger cases, there, there absolutely is more likely to be a team of you. So you're likely to have a junior barrister and, a um, you know, you probably have a silk. Um, and you've got the solicitor and yeah there, there'll be more more people on the team um, but but as a junior barrister you are a little bit um, alone <laughs> and you're constantly sort of knocking on doors in chambers and saying oh, can I just run something past you please <laughs> um, but um, yeah you just have to you just have to get through that bit. Very helpful to know good advice. <laughs> Don't let me put you off by the way. <laughs> Okay, so our last question is, what have you found to be the different challenges in your role as a barrister versus your role as a judge? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, um, as a barrister, I think probably the sort of thing I found difficult was um, representing a case that I didn't really believe in. And obviously, that's just what you have to do day in, day out. Um, but it can be difficult. Um I remember in particular one case, in fact, my first case when I went back after maternity leave, um, I was representing someone who was charged with some quite unpleasant um, offences against children. And I remember thinking then, oh, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Mm. Um, so that that's a challenge. Um, and having to stand up and argue something and being challenged by the judge when you don't, you know, really have full conviction in what you're saying is, is a challenge, but you you get used to it. Um, being a judge I think the challenge with that is at the end of the day you are the decision maker and the buck stops with you and you make a decision you do the best you can and you analyze the evidence but you never really know what happened and whether you've made the right decision um, and that's a different challenge which obviously you don't have that um, responsibility when you're the advocate because someone else makes the decision so yeah those are probably the obvious things that that stand out Okay. Well, thank you so much for the time you've taken to answer all those questions and feature on the podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. Very much appreciated. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of Law Talks. Join us next month for our episode on family law.